This podcast is brought to you by the Common Mission Project. Hello, and welcome to the Common Mission Project podcast series. Uh, as always, I'm Jim Santa. With me is my my co-host Rodrigo. Welcome, Rodrigo. Hi, Jim. How are you? Really well. It's good to, good to be working with you again on on the uh, on another episode. How are things with you? Oh, fine. I think this will be a fun one. It's uh, it's nice to get to get uh, the 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 mindset of a dystopian. Uh, of a dystopian observer, and uh, that's kind of what we're going to be trying to do today. Yeah, so this is going to be an interesting episode, and, and we talk with the season about not necessarily being educator focused with everything that we're doing. In this one episode, we're gonna we're gonna talk this idea of, of how to make better decisions and, and via a post mortem and what a hacking for a class looks like uh, via that idea of a, of a pre mortem. So. Um, we want to kind of jump into some of those things, but also this idea of the value of getting out of the classroom and kind of whether this plays into this post or this pre-mortem idea of, of facilitating really quality outcomes for the students. And this is going to be, I think, an, a very interesting conversation for both of us because it's something that we've been talking a great deal about, this idea of what is an H4 class. Yeah, I, I, I heard for the first time uh, from Danny Kahneman, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, a noble, noble winner, right? So the, this idea of the pre-mortem, he's not the creator of it, it's somebody else, but he refers to it multiple times in his work. And I think it's a great mindset, not only for, for hacking, but in general for, not only for hacking for, but in general for innovation, uh, to look for mechanisms to anticipate failure points and get us in a mindset that shows us what are the essential elements that define mission accomplished right so that de- define success for those of you on 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 uh, with a with a military background the importance of being able to define what success right mission accomplishment it's so big that we even placed it in the mission model canvas in that bottom right part of the of the canvas right it's a right, mission right, accomplishment yeah. what does what does the wind looks like well one great way that i think exists to the to answer that question is to, to, to answer the opposite, which is how does total failure looks like? How <laughs> right. do we get to that failure point? Because then we can try to anticipate it. So let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about it and see what failure looks on a hacking for context. Absolutely. So uh, I think we can dive right into this idea that what a pre-mortem is and you know danny really has a great way of men and so i'm just gonna this is from an article and i'll, I'll post a link to this article in the description but this is what this is what danny says is pre-mortems encourage people to use perspective hindsight or more accurately to talk in future perfect tense so instead of thinking we will devote the next six months to implementing a new hr software initiative uh, we travel to the future and think we have devoted six months to implementing the new HR software package. So that's and it went miserable, right? right? It went miserable. So now you're again like, what went poor here? And this is a way of like we can frame it as risk management, project management. There's so many ways of doing it, but this pre-mortem idea is this was terrible, <laughs> and <laughs> kind of going through that risk management framework in your head now. As educators, I think if you look at that traditional lectern experience, right? Well. Your pre-mortem is it, that that paradigm is is appropriate there too, but because of this flip classroom idea and the idea of students getting out of the classroom and what makes an H four class, the pre-mortem here I think makes great sense for faculty to kind of sit with well before the class starts and figure out well what is it that I'm trying to get across, right? I mean that's kind of what the idea is here. Correct, and I'll say it for anybody who who's more startupy. Let's say that it's not in academia. This is also a great a great tool, right? So it it, right. it allows you to think of all the pitfalls that you will encounter as you are going through your innovation ramp. And of course, you cannot anticipate them all, but it does give you that 
future perfect perspective that you mentioned right now right now uh, where where you with humbleness but also with some kind of a permission structure allow you to think about failure which is something we don't like to do right so that's right. the other thing Cogn cognitively a pre-mortem allows us to say okay we told you to think about failure so don't feel bad about it it's not it's not that you are invoking it or don't don't uh, don't be afraid of it it actually it's a great way of saying okay let's let's avoid in, in all of the multiverses let's avoid that one right let's get exactly, things right. done in the right way yeah and that, i think that's you know we, <clears throat> something i talk about in my classroom a lot is failure is not a bad word and i know that there's a lot of condition that's happened societally at least here in the states where people are scared of failing and i think that's a bad that's bad we we have to be comfortable with failing you it teaches us you know how to learn and and things we didn't think about and i you know even just for me professionally, I had somebody ask me, you know, ages ago, how'd you get good at this? Well, I, I did it badly for a long time, <laughs> you know? Yep. Um, and I think we do the same thing after a class is done. Like we go through and examine like what went, went well, what can I implement differently? So this pre-mortem idea is baking in this, we're going to have a really awful semester in this case. What did we not do correctly? So I think I want to frame this in an idea. Let's start with beneficiary discovery, Rodrigo. And I think this is obviously one of the, the perfect, if not one of the most important pieces of what we mentioned in H4 class and H4 class is let's pre-mortem discovery. So the idea of you got a team of five students who are working together and they're going to get a hundred interviews by the end of the semester. And so our pre-mortem is here. They hit half that or worse, whatever it is. They did not, they did not hit those numbers. They did not come out there. Yep. And not only did they not hit the numbers, they still have a solution that they're, that they're going through. And perhaps it's not been validated in a, in a, in any sense of the data that they've collected. So let's jump into discovery Perfect. and a pre-mortem there. I think that's a, that's a, a great place to start. So we've go ahead. Finish your class. Yeah. yeah we've finish finished your class. class and the, uh, as you said, the teams did a horrible job for multiple reasons, and we'll talk about what those reasons were, because ultimately mm -hmm. that's the goal of the pre-mortem, right? To identify original causes and avoid them. They have 20 interviews after a semester. The interviews suck. They ask the same questions. There was no learning. There's no validated learning, and they still came up with a solution, right? right. They still claim to have a solution. That, for me, it's a, it's a failure. Right. So, Absolutely. So something went wrong in this class. You ended up with a very low long number, and we'll talk about why numbers matter here. Mm -hmm. uh, we ended up with a very low saturation uh, of interviews, and those interviews repeated the questions all the time. Uh, there was no change from one to the other. They were haphazard, right? Uh, uh, they just interviewed the people who would pick up the phone. There was no deliberate effort to get critical stakeholders as part mm -hmm. of that conversation. Right. And on top of that, to make to add insult to injury, they still the team claims to have a perfect solution to the problem and came up with gizmo eggs that they're recommending for it to be built. Yeah. So let's let's talk. There's a lot to unpack there. So let's talk yep. about a few of these things. So what why why do teams not hit their interview marks? So there's a lot of reasons here. So let's talk about the things the students can control and the faculty can control first. Um, let, it's part of it is not putting in the effort. Right. So what you'll ask is, are students actually putting in the work? But this is predicated on the faculty being present in the classroom and asking that question. Where are your interviews? How are you prepping? What um, how many people did you reach out to? And I know we talked about this many, many yep. times, but there's a lot of work involved in the student end that can be that would mitigate these low numbers if they're actually putting the effort in. So do you what do you so from a premortem perspective? Well, how do we fix that? 
So Rodrigo, yeah. what, what's let's let's unpack that first. So yeah, first of all, I would say that you said it. Right? First of all, it's laziness, right? And yeah. let's be very candid. Now, right, um, most people who join these programs are not lazy, and I'll say, but I'm just trying to cover all the scenarios, right? Right. So scenario the worst case one, scenario. The, the worst case, you just got a bunch of lazy, lazy students, unmotivated. They were made to take this class, whatever, right? So mm-hmm. uh, uh, th- that's really hard to deal with, uh, like in any other class. It doesn't matter what when you're teaching a unmotivated student. Uh, in an ideal scenario, you are uh, you are a fantastic faculty uh, member who can inspire and push forward. But the reality is that if somebody doesn't want to be there, we are not going to be waterboarding them uh, to make them <laughs> like it, right? So, right, right. Um, if if it's laziness, the, I, the, the the thing that I would say is a recruitment problem, right? The, pro- yes. the problem happened before the class even started is why didn't we get the right kind of students and there are many yes. reasons for that and it will depend on the on the university but this goes to show the importance of the recruitment effort something that we might take for granted and frankly I'll say as faculty we might not even be paying too much attention attention Absolutely. we assume that this is somebody else's responsibility yeah. and and a successful hacking for class starts with a successful recruitment Right. Yeah, and and I think the interesting thing here is so uh, I I posted an article on the Common Mission Project website uh, this this week. Really good. Um, yeah, we should so post the link on the on yeah. The, we'll on we'll the, do that too. So it's, it it kind of ended up becoming almost a short literature review because all within the span of a week, uh, Pete Newell, the CEO of BMNT, and one of our our uh, our interviews in the the first episode of season two. Uh, posted a great article on Defense One talking about the value of getting out of yep. the classroom. And then there's articles that are coming from the Chronicle of Higher Ed and from Inside Higher Ed that are talking about students are lacking engagement. They feel like they're not uh, being able to get anything, not anything that's being too too uh, broad there, but they're not they're not walking out of the university experience feeling like I, I, I did something that's going to prepare me for the future. So we're talking about recruiting and getting students engaged. You need to find those students who feel like they're disengaged from that process, that they want to feel like they can actually do a real project. And to me, that's one of the value propositions that I sell to students is that, do you want to work on something that matters to you and that will teach you how to do this, do something impactful in your career, whether it's going in in your first job or starting a business? This is a place for you to be. Um, that recruiting part, and then being very honest with what your but expectations you, you see what you said, way. Jim. That that part is really important. I, you are okay. involved in the recruiting. I'm involved in the it. recruiting. Yeah, you, you say something. I tell them. Well, that already assumes that you engage directly in the recruitment process. Yeah. So that would be one of those things where if you're having unmotivated students that are coming in time and time again, yep. and you're disengaged from that recruiting process, and even if it's not, you're going with student clubs necessarily and going and meeting with with those organizations. I get that not every faculty has time for that, and even for me as just an ad. It can be, of course, very difficult to get in front of students. But are you working with your chairs? Are you working with your deans? Are you putting out their material that's going to get them excited about what's going on there? And if the answer is you're not, well, this might be a place where you suffer with the with the engagement of your students because they might just be there to check a box. And hacking four is not a check the box class. It, it just I w- isn't. I would say that as faculty, we have the responsibility of uh, apply lean launch but principles to our own class. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that one key activity here is uh, recruitment. Yeah. Now, I strategy? don't know if you outsource it with key partners. I don't know if you perform it directly, but it, this is not unlike any other project that we have. So so your students are your customers in that regard, your beneficiaries. Okay, we'll use the, yeah, the mission. Yeah. So, so <laughs> they, they, they are your beneficiaries. What yes. are you doing to get to the right people in the right way? If you do that, you save you solve this part of the pre-mortem, right? Then they are not lazy. They are not disengaged. 
right. uh, at that point, the omen is on you as faculty to make the class interesting. Yeah. So, so let's pre-mortem another part of the, the discovery practice is one of the things that I, so how do we get the students at hundred, that hundred number as a team? How are you grading that? How are you getting your students engaged with that process? Now, yep. for example, at my university, the students cannot pass the class unless they get close to that 20 number. They just, they can't. That's how it's designed. That's how my syllabus goes. And I hold them accountable for that. But the piece there that has to be, it has to be beyond just the grading aspect. What am I doing to facilitate their success out of the class? Correct. So I think that's a really key piece here is that, you know, there's this idea of like, you know, bringing the horse to the water and putting the straw and trying to do all these things for them to do it, but they, they don't drink. That's something entirely itself. But what are you doing as faculty to help get that engagement going? How are you holding accountability? And I think that's a really important piece from us to think about is students are driven by getting a good grade for the most time, or for the most part, excuse me. There is truth to that. Even though the grade is not necessarily the desired outcome from a learning perspective, if there is motivation to be spoken there, how are you holding accountability in, in some ways? And I think regardless of the grade and how you're doing that, how are you as a faculty holding the students accountable, A, and then B, what resources are you providing to them in order for them to be successful? And those are two parallel paths that do intersect. It, it, yeah. It's just inevitable. I agree. And for those listening to us who are not students, but are kind of more on the startup world or in the mission-driven entrepreneurship world, which this translates even clearer, right? So because if you think about what do you need in order to be successful in a venture, well, you need information, you need data, right? That's why we right. do the build, measure, learn cycle. And uh, I, I would say that when we talk about a hundred interviews, well, it might sound very down, down, daunting if you are thinking in the context of qualitative research in academia, right? Right, but yeah. To say that you're going to use 100 data points to shape the, sh the form of your new product, well, that would be the minimum that you would expect, right? Absolutely, so if you, yeah. A, a focus group alone will be 20 or 30 people, and you will need much more than that. So it is very common in the private sector, in the startup world, but also in the mission-driven world, uh, to assume and understand that you will need a lot of people in order to validate the knowledge through the discovery process. Absolutely. These interviews, so-called interviews, will take many shapes and forms, right? So mm -hmm. one of the examples, I think we have already used it in the podcast one, but I love it from, from, from Rent a Runway, right? So yeah, yeah. Rent a Runway, the, the, the startup that almost went belly up during the pandemic, I think they did survive. Uh, a bunch of students from uh, Harvard, they wanted to see if they, if they could get the high fashion dresses for rent online and, and, and girls would, would, would rent them. And they went and their first MVP was literally go to, through their closet and find their own dresses that they could put on a rack and get their, themselves in the middle of the square there in the crimson, outside of the crimson in, in, in Harvard and just see if people would rent it. Right. And, that caused them nothing. Uh, and if you think about it, well, that's 15, 20, 30, 40, 60 interviews right there, right? Absolutely. Contact points with potential customers. They didn't fake it. They actually rented the dresses, so mm -hmm. which gives you a higher level of commitment. Absolutely. Once they saw that that worked, they went to the second level. Well, okay, they rented when they can see it, but they will rent it if they can't. So they snap pictures of the dresses mm -hmm. and just made a catalog and show it to them. So again, 50, 60, 80, 90. So you're already at 200 data points right there, right. right? So, and you haven't coded a single line of code. You haven't built a website. You haven't done anything. And you already have 400, 500, 600 data points. Now we're not asking 600, but we are asking a hundred 
contact points. Yeah, right. We call them interviews, but hopefully they're more than just a chat, right? You bring right. a you bring an MVP, you bring a process if it's a policy, you bring an AB process if you would you rather do it like this or like that, mm-hmm. and you speak with as many stakeholders who resemble the beneficiaries as you can to get that number. It shouldn't be hard to get to 100. Actually, it should be a fairly easy number. To get. Fairly easy number. I agree with that. And I think, you know, and this is where you do see, you know, comparisons. Like I, I can speak from personal experience, right? Where when I was stationed at Fort Myer, we would do testing with our colleagues at, yep. at Fort Belvoir. So we would have one of the teams would go and do spend a week at Belvoir in a dark room with with uh, with uh, night vision goggles, testing out new iterations of that. And they would have 30 contact points just from that testing. The next week out, okay, we're going to do this, but you're all going to be in Humvees and you're going to be driving these vehicles with this next generation. We're going to get data points from all of that. They didn't ask us a lot of questions. They would go through and say, can you walk through? What was the difference? I remember my scenario with doing this was the depth perception that I had from the old version of the NVs compared to the new version. And if anybody who's walked around in in night vision goggles before knows, your depth perception gets thrown out the window. And when you try driving a Humvee in the middle of a wooded area with a lack of depth perception, it is an experience and a half. So they were they had specific things that they're trying to get in mind because they've already gone through that MVP process multiple times. So by the time I got the goggles to test, I was probably this, the thousandth soldier who had used it at that point. And they were still a long ways off from actually deploying a new a new version because they were collecting all these data points. So this is a point that you're making, Rodrigo, that I completely agree with is that this is 100 is an easy number. How creative are they being with it? Because, you know, you're talking about, like, could they run a focus group? Can there be polls that are being done to do like, hey, I, I ran a poll on, I had students run a poll on the on the Reddit for our campus. And hey, I got 30 people who touched on this. Great. There's an interaction that you've got 30 data elements that will validate or invalidate a, percep- a perspective that you have or uh, validate or invalidate a hypothesis, as we like to call it. So um, it's something that you know, again, I think there has to be some creativity, but the faculty have to hold accountable. And I think the other way that has to be holding accountable with all of this is how are you constructing your ecosystem to support the students? And by that, I mean, beyond your teaching team, you know, I have people in my, in my past that are actively engaged in my teaching process, right? So if there's a problem in their domain, I've got them hooked up as a mentor, or they're going to be able to provide resources. I've got a friend at Rand Corporation who's able to do introductions for researchers there. I am helping facilitate that. So again, this traditional paradigm of saying, you're going to listen to me talk and go do your work, it's thrown out of the window in the flipped classroom by virtue of it having to, to be successful. I mean, I think that's a, that's a fair assessment. Yeah. So we, we keep this primordium, right? So you got the Right. right people and then they are actively engaged and they understand the value of, uh, 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 robust, uh, robust uh, discovery process. Well, how can discovery fail? Well, and there are many ways. You just mentioned one of the most important ones. Actually, discovery fails when the faculty member disengages. Yes, hundred percent. So, sends them uh, as if they would be a fire and forget. Especially when you're dealing with undergrad students. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, a lot of the interview process it's in itself building executive skills, which is one of the things that makes Hacking for amazing. Absolutely. Uh, but it also means if you're building executive skills, is that sometimes you have people who don't have it, but right? mm-hmm. have them, which is what they want to learn them, right? So your job as a mentor, as a faculty, is to help them there, right? And, right. and if they are having trouble opening doors and they're not getting the right people, uh, first of all, you should know, and then you should be able to course correct, right? And course right. correct, that might mean many things, like reaching 
to the sponsor, reaching to somebody else who's not the sponsor, but uh, looks like the sponsor, or mm -hmm. just going through testing business ideas book, the race, Eric Rice book, and yep. helping them brainstorm alternative paths. Sometimes uh, path A is closed, but you can try B, C, and D. You just mentioned, right? So, so right. there are certain beta testing that you can do, and certainly that's part of that. So the next element here is if you have students who are engaged, so you did good recruitment, right. and they want to do their job, the second is faculty should be there on top. Right? Yes, and, absolutely. And helping them move to that next level. Yeah, and, and, and this is where, you know, you have also have to get creative with this in the classroom. So one of the things that I will be seeing when they're going through their discovery is, are they focusing too much in one area or have they ignored a specific area? So um, one of the examples you can say is if you're working with, um, if say, uh, certain like uh, visual technology that pilots would use, let's just say, so they got a heads up display that goes in their goggles. And they're like, you know, we've been really struggling to find, you know, military pilots that are doing this or whatever. Like, well, have you looked at the police? Have you looked at the civilian sector? Have you gone to the training areas? There's a gamers, gamer, right? Have that you, yeah. you gone to flight simulators? Have you gone to the general aviation community, right? So right. there's a ton of different ways exactly that you're saying that you can find alternative paths. And that's you as the creator of the experience that you have a responsibility if they don't think about it to help them think. Right. Because the question really is, why didn't you? And you have to uncover these different mechanisms to see. And I think oftentimes what's interesting with that is it's really it's really interesting to see, well, what are civilian pilots doing? What are police pilots doing? What are they seeing in the military and where this technology can kind of coalesce? And it helps open eyes to what the problem domain really is. It also helps to find dual use opportunities if the students explore this in such a way that they are actually going beyond that really finite scope of oh, I'm working with the government. No. Your problem domain is not just a government problem 9.9 .9 times out of 10. Um, if we're talking about drone intrusion, for example, this is a problem that I get quite frequently as an educator. Football stadiums have this problem. Communities have this problem. Airports have this problem. It's not just a military installation Correct. or an embassy. So fact, why aren't you talking to them? That gets us to the dual purpose part of here, yes. uh, which is sometimes your best path to find the solution to the problem you're exploring is not in the military for hacking from the defense program, it's somewhere right. else, and then you, you port it to the military, right? Exactly. So this is one of the beautiful things about thinking about the technologies we're developing as dual-use technologies, that it opens our market for, for, for not only the development of the product itself, but it opens our market for the discovery process. We might right. go and learn in places we didn't originally anticipate. Exactly. And that's the value of the program, getting out of the classroom and building up these ideas of what archetypes really mean very broadly. And you're not going to understand the problem until you really go in and actually go through and, and do these exercises of getting out there. So again, from a pre-mortem perspective of getting that pool, if you really think about it, that 100 number is highly accessible if you have done your work in preparing yourself and your students appropriately. And I think that's one of the things where I see as failure points is that if you're, if, if you end the semester and a student team hasn't hit that hundred number, again, team of five I'm using here is my, my median bell curve number. Well, there are a handful of reasons why. And if you, if you haven't done your due diligence here as an educator, this is a failure point and it's going to lead to failure point time and time again. Correct. And, and I would say, again, a lot of this has to go with the idea of 
an interview is not an hour and a half with one person, right? right. So that's 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 a contact point, and it doesn't have to be like that. Not each not each interview has to be at a working ethnology that Levi Strauss will be proud of, right? right? So it might honestly be just would you use it or not, right? Mm-hmm. So would you try please this prototype that I just built, this MVP, and 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 I don't even ask you questions. I just see how you do it, and I know what I'm looking if I thought well. So that takes us to the next. Failure. Okay, so we we didn't fail there. We didn't fail in recruitment. We did, but we failed on the quality of the discovery. And I would say that frequently the problem with the discovery process being of bad quality has to do with the sequencing issue. Right? Okay. So yeah. yep, yep. Uh, you think of what you need to learn. You come up with the sequence. This this is not random, right? There's an element of validation on the canvas that you have to perform. That if you haven't uh, you cannot move to the next step. So you want to go to those elements on the canvas first. Yes. And once you want to do that, you want to change the process that you're following, kind of what I said with rent the wrong way. Okay, will they rent it? Okay, will they rent it if they cannot see it? Will they rent it if they cannot see it or try it? Will they rent it if they can only rent them online? You are advancing in this canvas in the mm-hmm. different hypotheses, the hunches that you have in order to test them in, a, in the right order. Now, the right order can change, especially when you have a pivot. Oh, right. right. If you have Absolutely. a pivot, the order of the testing will change. But I would like to see teams that are deliberate on that and they're looking for something in particular. So teams that went and got 100 interviews, but they were random and they never had an order and then they end up with, they end up with this kind of cocktail of uh, uh, potpourri that hopefully there's some validated learning there, but they don't know if there is or not, right? So helping them guide and build that sequence is almost as important as getting that number right. Right. And, and in one of the ways that that really has to happen, again, goes back to the point of being present in the classroom. So uh, one of yep. the things that I, uh, you know, uh, our uh, our executive director of the Common Mission Project, Alex Gallo, has a, a really interesting way of teaching this at Georgetown University. And Alex, if you're, when you do listen to this, I just want to give you kudos to this because there's this idea that of almost having a gate review throughout every single one of the, of your presentations that you don't get to move on from yeah. box A until you understand what box A means. And this is, you know, the first couple of weeks, do students mix up key partners and beneficiaries? Sure. Now there might be deliberate changes based on pivots that happen. But again, I sure. go back to this idea of why did this not go right? Because the faculty was not prepared to provide the feedback in the way that's going to challenge every single assumption along the way and asking the students that if, well, how did you get here? Why are you doing this? Why didn't you think of this? Well, what are you going to do next with this information? If you just watch the information and they watch the presentation, you walk out of the classroom, you've, there's a failure, there's a potential failure point. And I would say not even potential, it will be a realized failure point. Yep. Yeah, so, so so that's such a great point. There there is there is an element of frustration on the on a lean management class in general, not only lean launch but anything, uh, because it doesn't feel like other things that you've done before. Exactly. So so for students, it's natural to find a level of discomfort. It's actually kind of desirable. Mm-hmm. The, the problem is that frustration builds into content when there is no pipeline to deal with it right and and this is where the faculty team becomes really important and getting out from the idea and i mean we all have made this mistake i think if we've taught this class long enough (laughs) uh, to getting out from the idea of being of being uh, a lecturer somebody who comes presents a unidirectional content to the room and then leaves assuming that the, the the room will absorb the content like sponges and instead 
uh, being part of this build, measure, learn cycle where you mm -hmm. say something, observe the reaction, react from it, tweak it again, and keep going in that cycle. So not only the students are in a in a build, measure, learn cycle, you as faculty should be too. And each individual and each group is going to be different. So you're going to have Absolutely. to provide different levels of support, uh, but you have to be there. And, and discovery also fails again so going on all the ways, all, all the silly ways, ways to die, right? So uh, <laughs> discovery also dies from a student team that is engaged, performing questions, but not the right ones, and a faculty member who's not there to help them build that sequence in the right in the right way. Yeah, and, and I think the other idea here is to touch on a, a, a kind of a different idea, but related is how are we preparing students to really do good discovery? Yep. And I think this is one of the so regardless of you like graduate, undergraduate, postdoctoral, whatever, there's an art to collecting qualitative data. And not everybody's natural at it. Not everybody's comfortable talking to somebody else. Like these are things that are real um, experiences in the classroom where students have a lot of anxiety with, with getting out and doing this work. So what are you doing to facilitate that? It's not enough to say, go do discovery. It's just it's 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 not because you're making an expectation that the students will know exactly what to do and they just don't. So Correct. the question that I would have from a pre-mortem perspective is well, what didn't you, what didn't you do? And I would I would venture a guess that faculty are not devoting a session early on in the semester to an experiential learning activity involving an interview lab of some sort. What are you doing? Yeah to do, to get the students to not only con conduct themselves professionally with government and military, how to ask questions, how to observe somebody uh, like an ethnography uh, type study, observe somebody doing their work. What's a good interview? What's a bad interview? How do you ask good questions? How do you use open-ended and closed-ended questions to get to a certain place that you're trying to get to? We can't expect students just to know this, just as we didn't expect ourselves to know this when we started our academic or professional journey. It takes time. So my challenge from a pre-mortem perspective to all of our faculty and, and not just faculty, but just anybody who's conducting discovery is how are you trained in this? What support did you receive in order to get out of the classroom and do this well? And I'd venture a guess that the, the answer is probably, probably not enough. Yep. I, it's such an interesting point that you're making because it, 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 there's a meta component here, which is what actually is a hacking for class, right? Mm -hmm. So, so we, I, I would argue, for example, from a pre-mortem perspective, that if a class didn't use the mission model canvas or at least the, the business, the, the the business canvas, right? The, 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 right. The, 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 uh, then uh, it's not a hacking for class, right? It might be yeah, another class, agree. right? Yeah. But I, I would say that if you're not using the canvas right now, it's even now we could, could you tweak it? Could you add? Actually, I would say no, right? Mm -hmm. So not, not for this class. You could add other stuff. Right, but this idea because we're trying to create a community of practice, we're trying to create a community of peers. So we want to be able to talk in terms of beneficiaries and and key activities and uh, mission accomplished and absolutely. Uh, so so you the, the value proposition and the and product mission fit, right? So uh, that's 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 part of the class experience, mm -hmm. and that's the method. So right now. Beyond the canvas, there might be many other tools that faculty learning more and more, speaking with all of our colleagues, uh, you see the fantastic variability oh, that there absolutely. is. And that's incredible, right? Oh, absolutely. So, so, for example, you could be using, you were saying, you could be using the empathy canvas or the value proposition canvas in order to help, uh, which are I'm, I'm sure most of our listeners know, but if not, uh, you can just Google them and they are uh, tools that are similar to the mission model canvas 
to perform different tasks. Now, I would say that you don't need to use the value proposition canvas to be a hacking for a class. Yeah, I agree it's with that. Darn useful in order Very to do useful. what you said, right? So yes. to help them set up for discovery. But you might have a different way of doing it. You were talking something that I've seen you do in class, Jim, this uh, 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 interview lab that mm -hmm. you were describing. That's fa that's a fantastic tool. I don't think that's essential to be a hacking for class. Oh, no, absolutely not. But holy cow, it's good at doing it uh, and at helping us build that experience. So, so yeah. Uh, great, great point there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's, you know, there are things in, in, you know, Rodrigo, you and I are on, uh, you know, complete in agreement, like what makes an H4 class the use of that canvas. But th I think the thing, if you think about an interview lab as, a, as an example is that is a facilitation of better execution, understanding of the process, not necessarily does it make or does it make an H4 class. The idea here goes back to what resources and tools and ideas are you providing to your students in order for them to successfully execute on the pedagogy yep. and a pedagogy that the discovery, whatever it is that they're doing. Again, this is not just um, an exercise academically. This has to do to your point about talking with the, with the Harvard students is that this is real world. This is how things work. And if you haven't validated an opportunity, a problem, a solution, whatever, well, how do you know that this is going to be successful? You know, I, I always come back to the idea of if you've got a great idea and nobody buys it, is it really a great idea? Yep, exactly. I, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and say no, um, even if, you know, you got invested in it. And I think that's a piece here. And it's not so much a pre-mortem ideas, but it's talking about the, the equal validity of when a student validates or invalidates a hypothesis. Those learning things are just equally valid. They, they coexist. And this is where, from a pre-mortem perspective, you have to set your students up to make mistakes because yep. that's how you learn. And, and mistake is probably even the wrong word. You have to have these learning things that inform the domain. Period. You have to test your idea, right? right? So again, what is the primordium here that we're discussing? If you're doing waterfall planning, this is not a this is not a hacking for class. No, right? absolutely If you not. came up with a project and you made it in your in your uh, uh, home office and you spend eight weeks doing it and you think it's fantastic and the first time it sees contact with the beneficiaries is at the end of the class. That's that sucks, right? So no, that's work. not it. And the good news is that we have data that don't that, that doesn't work. Any, another another Nobel Prize winner, Esther Duflo, right? So she 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 makes this amazing point in which one of the best ways to deal with development development policy the, and anti-poverty policy is actually she doesn't call it like that, but it's the lean process. You come up with a hypothesis that you can test, mm -hmm. and then you go and test it, right? Right. Think of how much in policy this is actually very important for hacking for impact or or a, a class or hacking for diplomacy. How much of our war, even hacking for, for homeland, uh, homeland security, how much of our F discussions in politics are ideological, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. If, you, if you give bed nets, this is an example from Esther Duflo, if you give bed nets for free, people will not appreciate them. So you should charge for them. And then the other side said, no, if you give them for free, they'll use them. And well, and, and we, 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 we discussed that from our trench of ideology. Turns out that's something you can beta test. Yeah. Right. So take two communities, give them for free, give them for a price, different prices actually, and see at the six month mark if uh, one community is purchasing them less or value them less. The answer is no, they, they value them as much. Mm -hmm. That has been tested. So right. you can get out of the uh, hypothesis environment and actually have validated learning based on research. That's what we're doing here. However, we get to that point, I would say 
it's variable and depends on the creativity and style of the faculty. But absolutely. if you are not doing that, that's not a hacking for class. Right? I, I, absolutely. And this is this is where we have to, in terms of this this premortem idea, is that we have to be uncomfortable with this with this conversation. Right? Is we're looking at something that none of us really want to experience as 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 people is this massive failure that you've invested a huge amount of time and energy and thought into something that that blows up on you. But the reality is this is happening in the classroom and this is happening in, in, in startups. This is happening all over the place. And it's because we either want to go into an echo chamber or we're not thinking about what all the what ifs that are going to really be experienced. So I think there's other thing to talk about, too, is now let's talk about something that happens for, uh, uh, from a premortem perspective and let's talk sponsor management. So yep. let's just say, and Rodrigo, you and I have had issues with sponsors. And I, and I should say, I frame this as um, sometimes people will um, PCS, like you know, they'll change duty stations. Uh, maybe th there's a lot of things that could happen. And I'm not going to take a negative view necessarily on on the sponsor in this in this uh, case. But let's they're just say they're a key they, stakeholder. Yeah, they're a key stakeholder. And for some reason, they're not present. So your students go through, you get to the end of the semester and your your sponsor was was not engaged, right? So there was no way of being able to validate, invalidate, uh, get resources from that individual, whatever. So we we had a, a bad sponsor uh, semester. Okay, so what do we? How do we? How do we? How do we premortem this, uh, Rodrigo? Let's let's start. Let's go into this one. Yeah, it failed miserably. The students could never get a phone call through, and they got no traction. And again, that failure happened before, right? It mm -hmm. happened either with the problem matching, right? Right with the selection or we didn't provide enough support to the sponsor to know what was required of they as they were going to be helping us uh, in this process. I mean, the sponsor mm -hmm. clearly wants success, right? Right. For them, this is important. They mm -hmm. chose as a problem that they care about. So a lot of this becomes a, a, a lost in translation moment of the expectations or need or the ask didn't come early enough. So this is one another another case where a constant communication with the sponsor early on, ideally before the class starts, but at Absolutely. least as soon as the class starts, becomes really important because sponsors are uh, in contact with the faculty members and with the students will feel much more engaged in the co-creation process. Yes. Whereas if the sponsor doesn't understand what's happening, as you say, it's a, there's a change of guard and nobody took the effort of uh, onboarding the new person to what's been doing or worse my worst case scenario is when this is being ramped down by the chain of command yeah. from the top to the bottom and the, the the people who are supposed to be spending the time with the team where they're never informed about the value of why this matters then they feel that this is being imposed on them mm -hmm. and lean has to be a process of co-creation and Absolutely. they are a stakeholder they should be managed as a stakeholder and therefore we should be doing a good job to help students understand how to co-create with, with, with people who are not trained in lean management practices. Absolutely. So that, that is that co-creation process is, is so intrinsic to this, is getting there to be partners in all of this, right? And I, the, the best uh, sponsors I've worked with are invested, right? They, they care about this, and, but they're also not invested in being right. Correct. And this is one of the things that's really important is why... And, I, and I've said this to sponsors before to make them think it's more rhetorical. Why did you come to a university to solve this problem if you already knew what you needed to do? Yep. 
Okay, exactly. you didn't, and there's nothing. And this is a, a you know something that I know from being in uniform myself is you don't want to be a peer that you don't know something that you're not right, and it can be a, a point of pride to just say I don't know, and it's just conditioning them to realize this is a co-creation process for these reasons, and be okay with the fact that you what you thought you wanted isn't what you need, and that's good. That's how this yep. process works. Yep. Yeah, and and of course, again, there's a learning process, and this is more of a strategy that I would recommend some faculty to do, to, to perform. It's that the more you interact with the same sponsor or the more that same sponsor has an experience with the hacking for world, the more they will be used to the idea. So uh, like anything else, baby steps, assume if this is the first time this sponsor has done anything like this, assume they have absolutely no situational awareness of what's happening, even though they may claim they do. Right. And part of the challenge is to ramp them up. So what could you do? Well, it depends again, right? From inviting them to the classroom, to right. uh, uh, informing them what you are doing, to creating the Domino's dashboard so they can yeah. see what the teams <laughs> are doing at any given time. I mean, the sky is the limit of creativity, but ultimately, you as the faculty, as the board of directors of this bunch of startups right around you, have to also interact with uh, investors, external right. investors, right? Think of them as the sponsors. Well, how would you do it in the private world? You wouldn't be pissed off with them. You would make sure that they are informed and they know where their money is going. Well, exactly. treat them with the same level of respect, assuming that some of them are going to be silent investors that didn't anticipate the level of work that is being asked for them from mm -hmm. them. And let's, let's help them understand what needs to happen for the problem they feel, the pain point they have to be solved, right? Absolutely. And I think this, a couple of things from like, a, like a, going back to this idea is, well, how did you communicate back with, in this case, maybe the commission project? Did you go the whole semester without before you said, oh, actually, our sponsor was completely disengaged? Um, that's that's obviously a problem, right? Um, I, I tell my students, don't wait until class time to tell me you've got a problem. Yep. Considering that they can slack me, they can email me, they can, but they don't thankfully text me. Don't suffer in silence. Don't suffer in silence. Let us suffer together as our, as Alex, uh, my executive director likes to joke, not joke, but that's his motto. I think he lives by that. Um, but he, the other idea too, is how are you getting involved in trying to address these problems early on? And when you find that you've got, if you're not informing, you also have to think about well, what strategy do I have? Well, let's just say your sponsor decides or not decides ends up being unavailable for half the semester for whatever reason. Um, who, who are they working with? Do you have your mentors lined up? Have, do you have people on your bench that can effectively act as a sponsor to be able to help see this, this, uh, process all the way through what creativity are you bringing to this as a teaching team? And this is sometimes, again, goes back to the, the point where if you're disengaged from that classroom process at any point, that's a failure point that will have tremendous negative ramifications yep. on the student experience on the sponsor experience and just on your experience as an educator. The richness of this comes with working with those students, period. And that actually connects to what I think is the most dangerous kind of failure, right? So uh, that I, I think that's that's where, thankfully, if we did our, th or the, our class, if everything went well, this will not happen. Mm -hmm. But the most dangerous failure that I see in a hacky for class is that of solutioneering, right? Oh, so, yes, absolutely. Uh, you just mentioned it, right? So the commitment of... Uh, a team to a solution, often because they haven't talked with enough uh, with enough uh, beneficiaries and they don't have the right scope. And this uh, defensive posture mm -hmm. that gets into the team often very early that makes them 
incapable of seeing that the solution might be somewhere else or 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 no solution at all or change and 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 we end up with what is basically a team committed to to an idea and doing everything uh, they can to defend it right yeah. and and that's 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 not lean right that's not no, what should not be lean. happening no we we do the way the things we do we do them with sticky notes because sticky notes are disposable you can exactly move them from the canvas and throw them to the trash mm-hmm. uh, and nevertheless from time to time one or two teams will be so enamored with the beauty of the idea especially when it's code right once you start oh. to code uh, getting them be to, to, to abandon that 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 code is hard Absolutely. but the same goes to many other things so uh, ultimately if a class is not looking for pivots opportunities right they, they don't have to find them but at least looking for you them, have to look for them uh, absolutely we have the what I think is the worst problem the the worst uh, way of dying in this pre-mortem is to be too committed to an idea early on and not having enough saturation of information from, from beneficiaries. So you end up building a solution for the wrong problem. Exactly. And I think the last point I'll add to that before we close out this episode is that solutioning not only happens on the student side, but also on the sponsor side. So oh, you yeah. have to condition your sponsors and your students to have conversations where it's like, listen, our information is based on this discovery, these data points, we're going in this direction for these reasons. And if your sponsor is like, I don't care, this is what I want, that's a red flag, right? That's going to lead you down to solutioneering yep. or not only solutioneering, but it could lead you down a solution or problem domain that is not validated. And that is, yep. again, to me, what makes an H4 class an H4 class is the validation of a problem space. And if you're if somebody's directing you to do something, that's not validation. That's, that's correct. That's waterfall. That's not what I we're actually doing would here. say. You said sponsors and students. I'll, I, I'll even say faculty. Oh, we, absolutely. Got to put ourselves. It's very in there hard too. when you have a when you start seeing them and you say, "Okay, no, 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 the solution should be this." Well, are you sure? Is that, is that sure? what the data is telling you, or is you as a faculty feeling that you've seen this before, therefore you think that's the way it should be going? It's perfectly fine for teams to surprise you as faculty. So yeah, absolutely, faculty, they should. sponsors, and students. We are all guilty of uh, obsessing with a specifically a specifically beautiful solution to the problem and le- letting it guide us beyond when the data tells us that it's the wrong path to follow yeah i think that's it's so important and this is one of the things that i always i i kind of joke but there's you know there's always truth in a joke is thankfully my students are much smarter than me and the problems <laughs> that they we get tend to be things that I have just a basic understanding of. So I I give examples, I challenge them and do things, but I don't know what the answer is. There's yep. no way for me to. That's a good thing for me as far as I'm concerned is that I don't, all I care about in terms of do they follow this process to get to a validated space, not do they do what I wanted them to do. Um, and sometimes that's at odds with the traditional uh, academic uh, way that we do things is I want them to go explore and tell me what I didn't think of. It's worse. It goes against a lot of the things that we teach on strategic planning. So and it goes to the sponsors, right? So most of our sponsors, especially those in procurement offices, and will be trained and they're actually legally mandated to follow strategic uh, planning practices. And strategic planning practice has many problems. Henry Minsberg talks about the 
the, the danger of, of some of the planning practices, we follow them, right? And many companies have executed the strategic plan perfectly all the way to bankruptcy, right? So <laughs> right. that's part of the problem, right? right. So um, if we if we if we do lean precisely, so we don't execute all the way to bankruptcy. So we change directions. So we're nimble and agile and flexible right. and all of those buzzwords that we throw in that, which are true, right? So, Absolutely true, um, yeah. We, we want these teams to abandon the idea that once you come up with a nice beautiful strategic plan you would plan you would publish it on a on a shiny paper and and make it set in stone you don't we no. build things in post-its because we want you to go away from preconceived ideas test them which goes to the 100 interview question where we started and yes. pivot as many times as you need so you define the problem right if on top of the problem definition you come with a great solution even better even but better, at least right. make sure that you have the right problem to begin with and that is the the the, the beauty of this taking this pre-mortem idea into your your classroom and i would say h4 obviously you know that's something i would i would suggest that every one of our h4 faculty do but i would challenge any faculty member anybody who's starting a business anybody in a startup anybody who's an entrepreneur anybody who's listening really to do this for something that you're working on whether you're working if you're a project manager and you're going to be doing a new software platform you know how we do um, in project management you might start at your hey our end we're going to do backwards planning we'll do the same thing with the pre-mortem this went terribly and why yep. and work yourselves back so that you can get yourself to a place where do we identify all the risk? No, of course not. It's, it's probably impossible to identify every risk, but you've gone through that process to help mitigate what a poor outcome will look like. And I know that's uncomfortable. It was you and I, I even just formulating this conversation, Rodrigo was like, this is going to be, this might rub people know, the wrong yeah. way, but it's important <laughs> to, to challenge those, those notions that we have about what success looks like because what success looks like in this and and what students are expecting is changing you know and again we have to be we have to be hyper aware of that and be responsive to what does an h4 class look like and we can do that in a way by saying what doesn't it look like and one of the nice things about the primordium uh, that i think kahneman talks about is that it's actually much easier to know what failure looks like than what success looks like absolutely because success can take a lot of shapes but if you were so used to the example of the bicycle before, if you're mm -hmm. riding the bicycle, where well, I don't know what success looked like. Will I be into mountain bikes or will I be doing a, a BMX or just for leisure? I don't know. But failure means uh, smashing my, fa my face against the pavement. Right. right. So that's, that's failure, right? right? So breaking my arm is failure, right? And, and, and uh, that's why I can much better visualize what do I need to do so I, that don't happen? Well, wear a helmet, right? And mm -hmm. and learn slowly and all the stuff that we do in order to have good pedagogy, right? Even yes. though I don't know exactly where I'll end up being, I know mm -hmm. where I don't want to end. So it's much easier to know which port of calls I don't want to get into than to know exactly which ones I'll be visiting. And that's the, the power of the primordium is that you don't have to anticipate the future to know which future you don't want to be a part of. Yeah. And, and I think that's the best way of being able to close out this, this particular episode. So I don't think I can articulate any better than Rodrigo than you just did there, but this is the challenge that I would pose to all, to everybody listening to this, go and do this, um, this exercise. It's not a lot of work, but I guarantee that you'll find things that you are not thinking of. And I can tell you for, for me, when we were preparing for this discussion, I learned so much about things that I could be doing better by evaluating 
my endpoint and moving backwards when things go poorly. So for me, yep. this has been a tremendously positive exercise, and I hope the rest of you will post some links in, in the description here. Uh, there's been some great articles. I'll post uh, I'll post the one that I have some references to the the Pete's article and the and the, a few others, and hope that you can take a look at some point. But it's always a pleasure, Rodrigo. Uh, thank, thank you, Jim. You. This was fun. Yeah, it was a great time, and we will see you on the next episode. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you again to the Common Mission Project for their support of this podcast. The Common Mission Project has demonstrated that students can tackle some of the toughest government problems and in doing so, create vibrant and diverse ecosystems where government, academia, and industry build partnerships around problems, prototypes, and solutions to urgent challenges facing our nation. We hope you enjoyed this episode, figuring out how to do a pre-mortem on your course before you get started. We hope to see you on the next episode. Thank you.